Hello, you're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm David Scott, filling in for Paul Colgan, who is away on assignment. Now, with Paul away, I've decided to go and uh, elevate uh, a BI staff member from the rookie list to uh, make his debut on the podcast, introducing someone who, a name that you no doubt uh, recognize and no doubt have probably read his work, Sam Jacobs, Markets and Economics Reporter at BI. Welcome to the show. Dave, thank you. Uh, Very happy to be on board and looking forward to a good chat. Are you uh, happy to get your first cap? (laughs) It's, um, look, I am. Maybe not as good as a baggy green that I once dreamed of, but um, it's, I'll take it. (laughs) Hey, have you seen the cricket score recently? You'll be happy to be, take this cap very, uh, very much so. That's true. Now, uh, now Sam and myself have had a very busy week this week, Uh, not least because it's school holidays in New South Wales and there's a few staff members away, including Colgo. So uh, let me just go run you through a couple of things that I uh, know landmarks per se that we've seen both domestically and abroad over the past week since we last talked on the podcast. Aussie dollar fell to two and a half year low, so lower since uh, February 2016. Today, the ASX Financials Index has slumped and it now sits at more than two year lows. Uh, sentiment among Australian property professionals has hit multi year lows. Consumer views on the outlook for home prices has hit nine year lows. There's obviously many, many more domestically, but they're just the ones that are just off the top of my head. Internationally, Chinese stocks have fallen to four-year lows. The Nasdaq has uh, fallen for five straight sessions, which is its longest losing streak since 2012, and off a lazy 4% uh, overnight, where uh, we're recording on Thursday afternoon in Sydney. Uh, we've had US 2, 10, and 30-year bond yields hit multi-year or decade highs in the past week. Crude oil hit four-year highs. And Italian five-year yields and credit default swaps for the same period have also hit multi-year highs. So there's a lot of things going on, and the macro backdrop seems to be deteriorating quite sharply for risk assets, obviously, what we've seen recently. Uh, thankfully, today our guest is, uh, is not only a macro uh, expert, he's also a CFA and someone who is going to be able to go and talk us through what the hell is going on, because no one really knows, Hopefully. Uh, introducing to you uh, David Goodman, Head of Macro Strategy at West Backpack. David, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. And, uh, so I briefly talked about uh, you know, some of the things we've seen in the last uh, last couple of uh, hours. Uh, obviously, stocks have been absolutely slammed around the world, starting uh, in, in Europe, then extending into uh, the US, and they accelerated into the close. And now in Asia, we're seeing absolute carnage across the region. Um, I need to go ask the question, David, what is going on? Oh, so uh, I knew it was coming and it's still impossible to answer. Um, look, as to last night, I think people love to have that answer, what 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 happened, you know. I mean, the two things that people pointed to were um, PPG and Fastenal giving um, profit warnings and downgrades based on the trade wars. But I think this is still just really a reflection of last week. You mentioned in your introduction some of the movements we saw in bond yields. And I think what, what we're really dealing with here is, you know, the ramifications of last week. Everything you mentioned, we've got the trade wars. But when we saw those bond yields move to that multi-year, multi-decade highs, um, that gave, you know, enough of a reason or, you know, for, for investors to sort of start thinking, well, you know, some do I allocate towards equities? Or, or is some are there risks here? Is the Fed tightening more than expected, and that, is that enough to sort of you know shake equities? Understood. Understood. And obviously, something has shaken up. I, I must admit, when I woke up this morning and I saw a few of uh, you know, I read obviously around the headlines of various publications, and I saw lots of things about the trade war, and I was just really surprised that that was being the uh, the, the catalyst. Because anyone who's watched uh, any of the PMI reports recently that have come around for the world, we're seeing new export orders have been quite weak. They've been contracting uh, for a long time in the last, you know, at least the last three or four months in Asia. So to say that all of a sudden this catalyst was the uh, was the actual uh, trade war per se, I found quite uh, quite. 
quite surprising. And I do think that uh, you know, bonds probably have a big deal to do with it. So I think that's probably where we should go and start the show and, uh, and really get into it. So as I mentioned, we saw two-year yields last night. So on, uh, on Wednesday in the US hit a new decade high, briefly. Then we saw 10-year yields uh, earlier this week hit seven-year highs, and I think uh, 30-year yields also hit four-year highs uh, within the week. Uh, so why is all of a sudden bond yields, after being so placid and being so low and, and not doing really anything and allowing risk assets to go and, and flourish, why all of a sudden are they starting to go and spike? Yeah, so there's, there's, I mean, there are a lot of different reasons, as you would expect, all at the same time. But I really think last week was a bit of a perfect storm for bond yields. Um, to firstly to mention we had China out, so it was golden week, so China was out. And if anything, that trade wars story perhaps got a little bit better. And, uh, and in fact, early in the week, you even saw good news with trade where we had the uh, USMCA, the NAFTA 2.0. Um, so perhaps there was a little bit of good news there for trade. We saw that incredibly strong US data last week. So the ISM data is a record highs or multi-year highs. Um, and of course, personified by payrolls as well, with the lowest unemployment rate back to 1969. But for me, the key last week, there was the Fed, was the Fed speak we heard from Chair Powell. And in his speech, he, he described a remarkably positive outlook. Now, that's pretty punchy words from your, you know, the head of the Federal Reserve. And, and someone and as well who's uh, he's kind of regarded as being a centrist, centrist in, in, in the, the, the voice of where the where the, the medium of the uh, the board is. Now, earlier in the week as well, he spoke on a discussion. He had a moderated panel and um, um, his, his quote, he said, there is no reason to think this cycle can't continue for quite some time, effectively indefinitely. Now, that's pretty, again, I mean, you, you've got, I mean that, that has hallmarks of Greenspan to me, this idea of tightening forever and, uh, you know, I've, I've solved the business cycle and, you know, I can just keep tightening because inflation backdrop is so quiescent and I'm, I'm meeting my, uh, my dual mandate effectively of, uh, you know, my unemployment rate's incredibly low and the inflation's sort of managed. Um, so that, I think that's the real story. That really, you know, caused the market to really wholesale reprice kind of that Fed outlook and what is that kind of, you know, longer run Fed expectations. That's what caused the rise in bond yields. Now, at the same time, a few other things happening in the background. Of course, there's been QE has, has reversed. Um, we've, we've got the tapering now or the um, ECB has slowed their buying of assets. The Fed is now not buying assets anymore and selling. The, uh, the, you know, they're not selling, but they're not reinvesting their balance sheet. So you've lost that big buyer. Um, another technical in the background, we had the US companies, their pension funds. So they were getting a, a tax discount until uh, mid-September, uh, the 15th of September. They were able to deduct their uh, pension payments at, at a higher rate um, than they currently are. So perhaps we lost a few big buyers um, and that caused a bit of the, you know, or at least it gave um, bond yields the freedom to move up when I mentioned that kind of, you know, revised Fed outlook. How about uh, how much of a, a weight would you go and put on? Now, obviously, the US is uh, is running quite a big uh, you know, budget deficit at the moment, uh, going to fund uh, stimulus and tax, et cetera, tax cuts that we've seen. Is that also a factor things playing into the mind of investors and making them a little bit worried? Because the, the reason I ask is we've seen that uh, you know, whilst 10-year nominal yields have gone and risen to seven-year highs, the real yields that we've seen recently – have driven most of that room. So inflation-adjusted yields have actually risen quite quite a lot more and explained much of the room. Do, do you have a, a reason why that could be the case? Yeah, so again, I mean, so the supply outlook, um, you know, has clearly been deteriorating in the US for a long time. Um, and the budget deficit uh, forecast will be, you know, continues to sort of... Uh, 
be worse than expected. Um, so I wouldn't point to that. I, I absolutely agree, though. Last week's price action was a revision of higher real yields um, and the inflation backdrop, um, again, break-even inflation rates in the US haven't. So they've been st- they haven't been able to break through that sort of 220 has been about the ceiling on, on US 10-year break-evens um, and, again, didn't challenge that. So... Yes, I think supply is part of it. Yes, I think it's that fiscal outlook. But again, I, I think the real story here is that monetary policy rather than rather than fiscal. Yeah. Okay. So the Fed, based on what the median Fed projections were for their year-ended uh, Fed funds rate forecast in September, we had one more hike coming in December this year. Yep. Then we have another three next year and then one more in 2020. Is that... Legitimate. Now, obviously, I, I go and ask the question because everyone is talking about the inversion of the yield curve. It's been discussed at length this year. Uh, and so where we've got know, two-year yields, most favor the two 10-year uh, spread. When two-year yields are higher than 10-year, it almost always has signaled a recession in the past. So with the Fed at the moment, why do you think that they are so confident with what's going on that they see the need to go and hike? So they've already done eight hikes. We're talking about another four uh, and, and bringing what uh, you know in policy into what's deemed to be neutral territory and potentially above. What's the reason why they're so confident about that? Yeah. So, well, let me say at the outset that's not the uh, Westpac view. So we we we're forecasting three more hikes uh, for the Fed, um, one more this year in December, and then two more in the first half of nineteen. And that's where we think the uh, you know Fed goes on hold because you have hit that point uh, in mid-19 where uh, policy where policy is at that sort of, you know, neutral level um, and at the same time the fiscal stimulus of Trump is, is, is gone through late 19 and you've got that slowing happening. So that that's – but clearly we see risks to the upside um, through 19 and clearly, I mean, that's sort of where market pricing is heading as well. Um, you mentioned the curve. Let's start there. Um, I think there's been a lot of Fed focus on it. And again, we've seen the Fed speech where, where they've talked about the curve saying, you know, it, it is their job to make sure the curve doesn't invert. So they absolutely agree with you, the idea that the curve, an inverted curve so. <laughs> um, uh, makes a recession. Um, you know, uh, Bostick said, yeah, it's his job to make sure it doesn't happen. I guess there's also some debate. I mean, uh, does the long end of the curve, does the 10-year represent what it used to? In a world of QE and excess liquidity, and, and as I mentioned earlier, central banks sort of buying and now you know not no longer buying, does the long end represent what it used to? Therefore, does the curve represent what it used to? That's a bit of a this time it's different argument, and I I, I don't buy that. You know, I really think I'm I'm, I'm with you. The curve represents uh, you know what it always does, and it's a pretty good uh, predictor of business cycles. So how can the Fed be confident? I mean, the point that we've seen is that the um, I mentioned earlier when we did see last week that where we saw real yields go up, it was a revision. We we saw a bear steepening. You know, the curve moved up and the curve actually did steepen a little bit last week. So it's still very much in a flattening trend. We and we that's sort of you know our outlook is we think we expect it to continue to flatten. I guess you've got to ask yourself that what what can cause it to steepen. And one of the things, that you, you know, is, is it inflation? Is it inflation coming back and, and really surprising to the upside? Is it, a, you know, the Fed gets behind the curve effectively? Um, perhaps oil is a good candidate at the moment for that, where we've seen oil prices spike higher. But again, that's mainly driven on supply rather than, than stronger demand. So we're, we're asking ourselves these questions and we can't really see what, 
what drives a, a markedly steeper curve um, unless you believe in this fiscal policy, like that sort of narrative that the deficits are out of control and somehow the world can't buy enough treasuries. Um, these kind of secular arguments around whether the 30-year trend in, in um bond yields going down has broken and now they are going to move higher term premiums will move higher those are the things we think steepen the curve but as i said we don't really buy that argument and we think you know as i said the fed can get a few more tightenings in and then you're really sort of settling somewhere where as i said we think bond yields still go a little higher Mm. but that curve doesn't invert Something I've read a lot and I've written about it a little bit as well is financial conditions as a, as a precursor to allowing the Fed to go and continue at the current uh, modest pace of tightening. Just for people who have, are not up to date with the financial world and what financial conditions or what a financial conditions index is, just really briefly, could you explain? I know that I think Westpac's got one that, uh, that you go and use that, uh, that gives you a sort of a feel as to how financial stress is uh, in the US. Yeah, yeah. So we all may, actually, this is probably a really good point, and I should have mentioned it earlier in the discussion. So thanks for bringing it back. But why the Fed can tighten this? You know, the reality is, and, and we said in Australia with the RBA, there's lots of other things going on, and it's as simple as that. So a financial conditions index, and there are many of them. Westpac has them. Um, the Fed produces them, and, and many other banks produce similar as well. But they're all designed around this idea to try and measure how how accommodative or, or tight is the economy as a whole and financial conditions. So broadly, they use you know, um, short-term rates, so cash rate or, or some sort of front-end rates. They use long-term rates, so typically we're talking about 10-year bond. They use currency, a credit sort of index, as well as equities. Now, we talked about the US. For the US, for example, I actually don't love the financial conditions index for the US. For, as a, for instance, um, equities are not held by many US households. So by saying, well, equities are going to record highs, albeit last night's fall, I don't know that really eases financial conditions for many households and therefore you know, they, 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 they can loosen their purse strings because equities are going higher. If you don't own equities, it sort of doesn't matter. But that's, I mean, that answers, that's the question. So, so what we've seen now is that equities, again, notwithstanding last night, but are still sitting very close to record highs. Credit spreads still sitting very tight in a you know, historical context. And whilst we're saying that the Fed funds rate is going up, but the rest of the, the financial conditions are still very accommodative. So that's also providing them room to, to tighten effectively. So I, I gather that if we get a repeat of what we saw in, uh, on Wednesday in you know, financial markets, uh, particularly stocks, and then we, I'm not sure about, I didn't see what's happening with credit spreads, but uh, no, certainly there was a lot of volatility around. Do you think if that was a continuation, that would go and lead the Fed to go and have a rethink as to, uh, to whether they should keep this sort of moderately aggressive stance of tightening? Oh, sure. I mean, there's, there's probably uh, many other things going on. They would say it depends on the real economic effects. So is it going to affect the inflation outlook? Is it going to affect their, their employment forecasts? If you got to the point where financial conditions did start to affect employment, then yes. But in and of itself, you know, sort of equity moves up and down. I don't, I don't think they'll, they'll respond to that now. Okay, so Westpac's call for the Fed hikes three more. But risk to the up, certainly risk, risk to the upside. Risk to the upside. Do you have a, a forecast for where you believe the ten-year uh, nominal yield will go and, and top out at? Yes, yeah, so it's sort of 320 by the end of this year. Okay. Um, which last week we were getting pretty nervous. Yep. Um, we were sitting at the top of the range, um, you know. But uh, 320 by the end of the year and 350 by mid-19. Okay, so a little bit further to go, and obviously in the way that uh, the financial markets have reacted uh, I know, to the recent lift, it uh, depends on probably, I think, on how quickly it happens. Uh, it could be more volatility ahead, hopefully not as much as what we've seen recently. Um, that brings us 
nicely to the next point, uh, and it's linked a lot to what's been going on in the U.S. bond market, is the Australian dollar. I mentioned at the top of the show, Sam, that uh, the Aussie dollar uh, has fallen to uh, you know, the lowest level since February 2016, just currently sitting above 70 cents. Uh, what have you been making of the uh, Aussie dollar for? Is uh, keeping you uh, keeping you up at night, or are you uh, just interested in what's, uh, what's happening? Yeah, I think it's, it's just interesting in terms of, um, when I think about currencies, all the different drivers that there are of currency markets and, you know, perhaps one angle of, of thinking about how the Aussie dollars moved is uh, yield differentials with, with the US yields rates that we've just been talking about. Um, but there's so, so many other things that factor into it. And um, I think just broadly speaking, uh, you know, it seems this, this downward pressure on the AUD has kind of been a function um, of moves in other currencies, largely this kind of broader shift uh, towards more US dollar strength since around April, particularly since around August as well. Yeah, it's, um, it's the Aussie, Aussies, since, uh, since uh, the late, uh, late January, or Australia Day actually, uh, the Australian dollar has fallen 13% to get the greenback, uh, which is quite remarkable. Yeah, and you know, I think um, on, in one sense it, it has probably given a little bit of help to the ASX 200 through the middle of the year. Um, you know, Aussie stocks kind of lagged global developed markets uh, for most of 2017 but they've had a pretty strong set um you know stretch through the middle of 18 um perhaps that's that's one thing that's helped there um so yeah when i think about currencies it's really it's just interesting in terms of how um they uh, correspond with different asset classes i think okay so david with the uh, with the aussie we talked about bond yields now i i'm an ex-currency trader and so i have a little bit of an understanding but no no one knows a right or a wrong answer so obviously we're seeing for many, many years, and in fact decades, we saw the Australian uh, no, bond curve, uh, yield curve higher than the US. So it gave Aussie a bit of a natural advantage in terms of being able to go into track flows. Now, obviously we've seen with the US being hiking interest rates recently, the RBA has been static. Uh, that's actually reversed now. And we've gone and seen, uh, you know, I think, is, it, is it negative? Yeah. Uh, the, the largest ever? The, uh, oh, absolutely, yes. Yeah. So the 10-year bond yields, the record, in, well, certainly last week, hit a record inversion. Okay. So in terms of what you go into, how you come up with a, an AUD forecast, what are the factors that you think are the most important? Now, obviously, yields are one, but is, is that the only one or is there no, other things that you need to go and look at? Absolutely. So let me just say uh, just from the outset, I mean, and, and personally, I, I was in the States a few weeks ago. My sister got married in Las Vegas. Uh, Congratulations. So I felt, I felt every part of that Aussie fall you mentioned <laughs> from 80 at the beginning of the year to, to 70 or 72 when it was when I was there. Um, so, but to answer your question, so what, what we, um, we talk about Aussie, we talk about it in, in fair value. Um, so we try and assess where is the fair value of the Aussie. Um, but, of course, because no one has the real answer, we don't have one fair value model. We have 11. Um, you put them together. And that's sort of we, – we try and capture what you're talking about, which is actually at different times, different things matter. So we put all those fair value models together and we average them. We see their standard deviation and we try and sort of calculate a, a fair value range for the Aussie depending on what's, what's important at the time. Um, but what is throughout those models? Absolutely. The things that matter consistently are interest rate differentials and commodities. So that's good. I mean, that's kind of like fits with your textbook knowledge of, of what should happen with, with, you know, interest rate parity and et cetera, that, that those drive the currency. But we also consider things like equity volatility, bond volatility, emerging markets. Um, I mentioned commodities, but those those go into the mix and as I said, at different times and depending on the zeitgeist of the market and at the moment that's trade. I mean, China is, you know, Aussie is being used as a proxy on China growth and, and trade. 
Well, there's no way to measure trade tensions. You can't capture that in a fair value model. But clearly, we're seeing that Aussie is being used as a, you know, as a sort, of, sort of a bit of a hedge or a downside risk in terms of the trade tensions worsening. Also, one other, you know, peculiar domestic factor, but the, definitely the um, leadership challenge that we saw and, and the Wentworth by-election coming in a few weeks. Um, the Aussie has underperformed our fair value models. Now, you know, again, I'm not trying to suggest there's a, a massive political risk premium in there, but there does seem to be a little bit there where where the Aussie has underperformed because of these other sort of X factors, if you like, that aren't aren't captured in the model. Okay, I'm, I'm going to give Westpac a, a pat on the back here now. I think it was about midway through last year, Bill Evans penned a, a note saying that the Aussie dollar was going to 70 cents. Yeah, that's correct. It's at 70 cents. So yeah. congratulations. Was, so, that, was, was Bill entirely responsible for that or was that a team Yeah, no, no. They, yeah, it was a team effort, of course. He'll t- just ask him. He'll tell you it was a team effort. Okay, so Westpac's got some good form on the board here. Now, obviously, we're seeing a lot of uh, no, risk-off behaviour in financial markets and things are all looking very you know, gloomy and bleak at the moment. But... Uh, you released a note, an update uh, on Aussie dollar forecasts looking to the year ahead. And you think that after the Aussies uh, fall, most of it is now done. So it's not actually going to be doom and gloom in Aussie dollar to 50 cents like back in the, uh, in the late, yeah. uh, late uh, 1990s. So the real st- – I mean the story behind uh, – and, and sort of Bill's thinking, the team's thinking earlier in the year when the Aussie was at 80 and, um, and we were calling it down to the 70 level by the end of the year – was it just it was around interest rate differentials, and we we really thought the market was overpricing the RBA um, and overestimating their tightening cycle, mm-hmm. where we believe they were on hold, and at the same time underappreciating, underpricing the Fed tightening cycle. So the market was sort of assuming that RBA cash would be above the Fed, and uh, we were sort of of the opposite view. Uh, now. Fast forward 12 months and clearly the RBA has been on hold and the market has really come around to our view. Um, pricing the RBA's small chance of a hike in 2019, you know, half a, half a hike priced by through 19, which really reflects the RBA's kind of language and the, the risks. But again, well, our forecast is RBA will be on hold throughout 19 and indeed throughout 2020. Uh, where the US... So, so, so that's why we don't think the Aussie dollar can take that real another leg down unless you you know unless you see a real change in language and and everything from the RBA that interest rate story is just not going to be there again so you're not going to have the market you know repricing away or pricing down the RBA view and that means the Aussie you know can can really not not fall as heavily okay. where the risks lie is clearly our US dollar view I mean, I mentioned we've got, you know, the dollar appreciating still. Uh, we see there's three three more hikes. But if you do see the Fed hiking more, you know, again, talking more hawkishly, hikes throughout the second half of 19, then that'll lend further confidence to the US dollar. And that's where that's where our risks lie and that's where we could be wrong. Okay. So in terms of your year-end forecast, where, where, where do you see the Aussie dollar botany now? Uh, well, 70 in mid-19. Mid-19. And then slowly but surely starting it's to go and creep back, back up. up. Okay. Excellent. I'm sure that uh, anyone who's going overseas will try to go and use their uh, hard-earned Aussie dollar balance to, uh, to go and fund uh, overseas well, purchases. As, a, as I said, I certainly I can recommend I had a wonderful time in Las Vegas <laughs> in LA, but uh, yes, I certainly felt every part of the currency. Understood. Now, another beautiful segue. We're talking about uh, what's going on with uh, with RBA. Now, you've got your view, uh, which is very dovish compared to what uh, you know, still a lot of the market is. Now, I know that HSBC was out uh, during the week saying that the RBA is going to be hiking by uh, June quarter next year. Now, HSBC has not been on the money entirely over the past few years. Like many forecasters, has been forced to go and push it back. 
I'm very interested in terms of the risks to the Australian economy at the moment, particularly what we're seeing in the housing market. Now, Sam, you've seen a lot of data that's come out from, uh, from CoreLogic and doing various things. Indeed. Uh, including a, a release from Westpac yesterday, the uh, Consumer Sentiment Survey for October was released. Uh, just talk us through what, uh, what you saw from the, uh, the respondents' responses from the, uh, from the housing questions in that. Yeah, so it was just because the, the headline number in that print was still relatively solid. It came in with that reading over 100, which is, you know, that indicates that consumers are a little bit more positive than negative. Um, but within that headline figure, uh, the, the housing data really stood out, um, particularly around expectations for house prices uh, in the future. Um, and after, you know, solid 12 months of falls, it seemed like respondents um, really aren't confident anymore. And I think that that particular um, index within the survey dropped to its lowest level since they first asked the question. Yep. Um, is that right? Back in, in you know, 2009. Yeah, May 2009. Right. Um, so, you know, it... it makes you kind of question, I guess, where those sort of qualitative factors like sentiment and, um, uh, you know, how, how people view, um, how, you know, their, their household wealth effect and, um, you know, where if, if they can't rely on um, rising house prices, I guess, um, can they be as confident um, about consumption in the broader economy? Yeah, now you've I've certainly heard it argued that there was no wealth effect on the way up, therefore there's no wealth effect on the way down. Right. I'm not sure, again, I, I'm not sure that's that's going to really hold true. And yeah, certainly, I mean, to rehash, but the, uh, the um, consumer sentiment data yesterday, absolutely, that was a really clear fall in um, consumers' expectation for house prices. But what was really notable was when you looked at it on a state level, so New South Wales and Victoria, which are the two states that had previously had the biggest sort of rise in house prices and now having the sharpest correction. But Victoria, Victoria fell 20% in terms of like house price mm. expectations. Um, and it just sort of shows that that, that um, correction in prices is really, you know, accelerating, uh, if anything. Um, if I may, well, I think one of the real interesting from the consumer sentiment yesterday, though, and this maybe we can discuss this and into the sort of consumer and RBA view, mm. but uh, whilst you mentioned the overall index did stay above 100, 101, um, where optimists and pessimists are just kind of neutral, there was really interesting detail around the uh, respondents, their outlook for the economy but their outlook for their own family finances. So for the economy, economic conditions, the next 12 months, the next five years, people are real, they're, they're above average. So people think the economy is doing well. They're seeing unemployment rate be low. Um, we saw the GDP numbers. So people think the economy is doing well. Mm. But when you ask their own family finances, family finances versus a year ago and, and outlook for a year ahead, they're both below average. So people aren't feeling that economic strength. So it's sort of the economy is doing well, but I'm not. And I think wages is the, the missing part of that puzzle there and people aren't seeing that, you know, any benefit from rising commodity prices or, or, or a lower unemployment rate. So that shackle, I think that will really act to restrain the consumer. People are feeling, you know, worse than average about their own finances and house price expectations being negative. That doesn't feel like a great consumer backdrop. Yeah, indeed. I think, um, you know, that's probably one of the main concerns for the RBA if looking at, Mid-year economic growth came in above expectations. Broadly, the economy looks strong, but the the consumption outlook, um, factoring in things like house prices, uh, household savings ratio, 
the what we're seeing in consumer sentiment surveys around family finances and the wage growth story. I think yeah, a lot of a lot of analysts are kind of keeping an eye on that consumption story over the next six to twelve months. Yeah, I, mean, I was just going to say. I mean, RBA themselves in their minutes. I mean, they describe it as a source of uncertainty. Right. You know, I mean, that is clearly yeah. what they are worried about: the outlook for household consumption. Understood, and and I think rightfully so. You know, given we've got the household savings rate where it is at the moment, you know, we're looking at a decade low there and very very skinny. Um, and like the one thing I just I'll pose a question to both of you. Now I rattled off a whole lot of you no know, figures about you no know, property experts, and we saw the sentiment towards prices, you no know, house prices. How big a risk is that something becomes that this becomes disordered? I know Westpac's uh, view at the moment is that the house prices will fall modestly and over the next sort of 18 months or so uh, but nothing that's going to be you know anything more than just a correction in prices but just looking at some of the, the statistics that have come out over the past week I'm just starting to get more and more concerned with how increasingly pessimistic people are coming and now throwing the uh, obviously what's going on with the Banking Royal Commission uh, and lending standards and things along those lines being tightened uh, could this get worse than what everyone is kind of thinking at the moment? I'll go, go first. I'll look. I would probably lean towards being a bit more on the optimistic side. I think um, you know the house house prices have come off. We're into twelve months of a downturn now. Um, what I like about it is it does appear to be very controlled. Um, the way that markets um, are just uh, sort of cooling off, um, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, um, as Dave just mentioned. You know. The, it's an interesting um, correspondence between those house price expectations in Victoria and the fact that you know Melbourne's now kind of taking over Sydney as um, as the fastest declines. But um, just broadly speaking, I think it has been controlled in those major East Coast markets that were clearly had a much faster run up over the last decade since the GFC. Um, when I look at things like uh, in, in terms of a, a larger housing collapse, things like home loans in arrears is is something that stands out for me as um, an aspect where you know Australians are still largely in control um, of their home loans, and um, then on the broader macro side, uh, the employment backdrop's pretty strong, and there's there's pockets of um, you know stronger. Uh, you know, we're seeing a turnaround in, in areas like mining, states like WA and Queensland, which were, um, you know, lagging the other states. So if I add it all up broadly, I tend to think it won't turn into a, a calamity. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how kind of Australians more broadly navigate the next um, couple of years with without being able to rely on, you know, those guaranteed um, house price rises, perhaps. Yeah. Well, I mean, from our perspective, so I mean, I'm I'm certainly watching the the, the macro and micro prudential. They're tightening in credit and the tightening in lending standards. Right. I think that is that is the sort of the key mm. um, piece of this puzzle. And and you mentioned the Royal Commission, but just how that plays through. We, we've got the um, financial stability review tomorrow. We've got the RBA describing credit conditions as the tightest in some time. So I think that is the the key to the puzzle mm. uh, in terms of how 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 long or how prolonged or how sharp that can get. Um, I think that is the part to watch. From a sort of bigger picture perspective, I mean, you know, previous cycles when we have seen house price declines, um, you know, they get they're, they're sort of the things that stop them are new buyers, um, you know, affordability is improved when, when you have um, rate cuts from the RBA, 
lower prices or rising incomes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of that's that's sort of the maths. Yeah. And we kind of know well. The RBA's told us they're not going to uh, they're not going to cut rates effectively, short of some emergency in China or something. You know, that's again not our sort of core view. So you don't have that. Um, we mentioned credit conditions sort of you know being tighter, and so it's hard to see you know waves of new buyers coming in. Um, and you can just see then, well, well, the responsibility, if you like, for re- restoring affordability actually comes down to prices. Okay. And that's why we sort of think we can have this sort of more longer period of just kind of, you know, muddle through, if you like, but sort of prices just falling zero to 5% and sort of just continue to correct. Sure. Like obviously, you know, the, the big factor that I'll, I look at all the time is that we've got as you said, the RBA is unlikely to go and cut rates any further. And a lot of that, a lot of what we've seen previously has been that the RBA has been easing, which has allowed obviously households to go and take on more debt to go and borrow. Uh, so we're not going to go and get that tailwind that we re- used to receive by pulling forward demand unless short of uh, some sort of emergency, which we hope is not going to happen. And as long as uh, employment conditions stay strong, I think that, I uh, know, personally, I think it should be okay. But uh, you just don't know it. Uh, an outcome where maybe uh, nominal prices going and flatline for uh, for you know, several years uh, would probably be a, a good outcome that I think the RBA and policymakers would probably appreciate. Yeah, I think you know the what Sydney's at about a six point four percent decline now from peak to trough. You know the the big bank forecasts. Obviously, the, the longer they fall, the more interest there is around kind of where the direction and prices are heading. Big bank forecasts recently have kind of been in that. 10% drop range, you know, Morgan Stanley's indicator came out today, um, sort of shifting from a five to 10% prediction more towards 10% 10 to 15 and a little bit more drawn out. So it is kind of leaning along those lines, but it's still kind of, um, you know, the general consensus, which which I agree with is that it it's, it's going to be a, a gradual process without, um, you know, a sharp unexpected drop. And Sam, you mentioned earlier on about uh, you know, Australian uh, economic growth in the first half of the year was just stonkingly strong, you know, powered by households, surprisingly enough, in the, in the June quarter as well. Yeah. Um, and they're obviously expecting you know, growth to go and remain above potential. Uh, you know, so uh, looking at 3.25% uh, you know, this year and next, uh, so that should go and you know, fit into their, uh, their views of unemployment you know, falling gradually back to 5% and a gradual lift in, uh, in inflationary pressures and a gradual lift in, uh, in wage pressures. <laughs> but uh, David, Westpac's not gloomy per se with, uh, with your outlook for the, uh, for the economy in terms of GDP growth, but you're not as optimistic that that's going to be achievable. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So absolutely agree, domestic demand uh, and the economy really surprised to the upside, um, 2Q GDP at 3.4%, um, and also a real uh, more balanced across the states and territories mm. than we'd seen in some time. So certainly encouraging signs, and, and that would be you know comforting for the RBA. But we, yeah, we are a little bit more pessimistic, and we do see that sort of slowing um, in growth. Uh, we, we do see the international backdrop sort of, you know, deteriorating a little bit and that slowdown in growth, which had been a, a sort of a tailwind for Australia. Um, domestically, the, the home building activity that had been a support, we are expecting sort of a leg down. We saw the dwelling approvals the other day, but just that, that sort of is going to continue to weigh on the, uh, you know, for, well, from positive towards a negative and that consumer backdrop. You know, the RBAs, it really does, they, they are relying on the um, consumer backdrop re- returning to, you know, 3%. And we just we just can't see it in a backdrop of, you know, you mentioned, but high levels of debt, uh, weak wages. We've talked through some of the sentiment measures and it's hard to see the consumer firing. Um, perhaps longer term as well. I mean, you can mention, but we do have the... Uh, 
key state elections coming up, uh, New South Wales and Victoria, as well as the federal election. Uh, That just adds a little bit of uncertainty into the mix. Uh, We did see the last two elections where businesses really kind of, or employment growth really slowed down. Uh, in the lead up in the six months before the elections, so it's you know evidence of, of caution from businesses. Okay, and now, we're, pro- we're approaching that. Level we're approaching now. that now. Now it's not a guarantee. You know, as I said, it happened in the last two. It didn't happen the two before hey, that. Wh- so, wh- once is an anomaly, twice well, yeah, is a trend. So um, you know, we'll, we will wait and see. But as a, as a you know a comparison, I mean, we've seen in New Zealand where we saw the change of government and uh, business confidence there has really plummeted. Mm. Now, um, whilst New Zealand, there's other things happening in New Zealand, but that might just be one little uh, you know factor for us to consider. But again, that's uh, I'll, I'll say again, our forecasts are not based on you know politics or a change in government or anything like that. It's this consumer story that we really see is the. The, the key reason why we expect that sort of below trend growth. Just on that consumer aspect that, that you talked about with all those different kind of headwinds um, Aussie households are navigating, did, do you lend much weight? If, if we look at that Q2 GDP number, uh, which was quite strong and somewhat unexpectedly driven by um, household consumption, uh, at the same time as the household savings rate kind of fell to 1%, um, you know, when I see that kind of you know, it seems that those two data points are kind of moving in opposite direction. Or, or another way of phrasing it is how long can that kind of go on for? Sure. Well, I mean, I, I can ask you another question, but is it a positive? Maybe right. maybe the household, maybe we're wrong and the household feels so confident mm. that they can maintain high levels of spending and draw down on savings because they, they feel great about the world. Right. Now, that's again, that's not our house view and that's not the way we're interpreting the data. Um, so can it continue? Look, savings rates can go negative. Um, yeah. You know, we can draw down on equity. Uh, that did happen prior, you know, sort of prior to the GFC. That's how the Australian economy was running. But with the backdrop right. of tightening credit conditions and banks sort of not being willing to lend, it doesn't feel like that can continue where yeah, you can get okay. savings rates going negative and really boosting consumption. And, no. and certainly the, the consumer credit report, uh, sorry, consumer confidence report from Westpac, the confidence levels at the moment are nowhere near those elevated levels when we were dissaving and we we're like, no, actually no digging into our savings to go and consume just before the GFC. So I tend to agree that I think that you know, you've seen a lot of uh, the drawdown that savings reflects that wages growth and income growth for households has been, has been fairly soft. Uh, and so that's as house prices have risen for many parts of the country, that's allowed people to feel confident enough to go and draw up on those savings. And obviously, you know, we're seeing unemployment as well as starting to gradually go and fall down. So it makes sense to me. Um, I was going to very quickly, we're starting to run out of time, but I was going to go and mention uh, with China, it's almost been lost in the, uh, in, in the woods with what's, uh, what's happened in the last few days. Uh, they went and cut uh, the reserve ratio requirement for the fourth time again this year, 100 basis point cut, which is going to go and release 120 trillion yuan out into uh, the economy. Uh, David, is that a sign that uh, just a liquidity operation or is it a sign that they're concerned with what's going on in their economy? Yeah, well, look, we, we are reading it as certainly, you know, consistent with their, their recent actions and, and trying to support the domestic economy um, um, amid the deteriorating global backdrop, um, the trade tensions. Uh, we are probably a little bit more, you know, bearish the, the the china story our, our gdp forecasts are a little co- below consensus so we're we're for this year for through the year we're 6.3 and slowing to 6.1 in 2019 now as i said that's below consensus whether the official stats actually show that or not is a bit of a moot point but what we're trying to show we we do believe there's a weakness in investment uh, story that's happening in china and that's that's i guess what we're trying to show in our our, our gdp forecasts 
But so do we think, I mean, you, you asked, you know, the, uh, the latest cut, I mean, it's definitely a supporting the economy. It is not, it is not a, a liquidity management story. It's more than that. And, and certainly the risks are that there are, are more to come um, as China looks to, you know, rebalance its economy towards the consumer and at the same time navigate a, a difficult global backdrop. Understood. So I think China's GDP is out uh, Monday week. Uh, I had a quick look at the uh, the consensus forecast that's been received so far, 6.6%. I can tell you in every single quarter for the past three years, the uh, the official figure that's come out has been either smack bang in line or up by 0.01% on consensus. So um, I suspect that we can either expect to see a 6.6 or 6.7, but whether the market's actually going will react As to I that. That was a moot point. Yep. Yes, it's, uh, it's one of those things I've, I, I'm often go and talk about you know, looking at the, uh, the data and, and trying to go and make a story out of it. Sometimes it feels like it's generally writing a, a fairy tale because um, the markets just do not react to what, the, what they used to do with the GDP report. And I think that sort of reflects that there's a fair degree of scepticism that the actual number that is presented at the time, it doesn't necessarily reflect what is going on in the ground. Um, now, a word from our sponsor. Now, we're going to conclude the show. We often like to go in, uh, and ask uh, our guests whether they have a special topic they'd like to go in and discuss. Now, David nominated uh, the interesting topic and one that I think is going to be very exciting to go in and discuss because it's got so many ramifications, if correct. Uh, deflationary forces of the fourth industrial revolution. David, what does that mean? What a nerd. Um, <laughs> okay, so this is kind of a little bit of a, I guess it's a personal kind of... Um, interest and, and challenge and topics. So I, I, I guess the fourth industrial evolution, I mean, what is it? It's it's what's happening now. It's the artificial intelligence. It's the digital. It's the fact that you we're all sitting here with two supercomputers called iPhones are literally in my pocket, you know? I mean, how amazing is this stuff that couldn't be dreamed of 30 years ago and, and literally costs nothing and I'm walking around with it in my pocket? Um so much like the uh, kind of industrial revolution or electricity, uh, it, it, which had this huge effect on, on, on um, lowering the cost of production and, uh, you know, democratising production, uh, could we be on the cusp of something else? And, and I, truly, I truly believe we are uh, and we're in the middle of it and we just don't know what it is yet. Um, so... When we see, so, and I think that's part of this big story as well. We, just to come back when we were talking about these big thirty-year downtrend in bond yields, I think that's part of the story as well. We have this, you know, that that we talked about the inflation outlook being more balanced that with this kind of globalized uh, world and technology that we might see inflation just being much more quiescent and uh, and well behaved than it used to be. Um, again, just to talk about that example for electricity, but, you know, there was um, electricity, Edison invented light bulb, um, late 1800s, but it didn't actually hit factories till the 1920s, you know. So there's sort of all this time where factories sort of sat there and went, oh, there's this thing called electricity, but I'll just still use my big diesel generator <laughs> and that's all I know how to do. And it wasn't until they really rebuilt factories and thought about how do they reprocess, how do they sort of completely rebuild? And it's very analogous to what? businesses are doing today there's kind of all these great startups all these people doing wonderful things and you've kind of got the old businesses sitting there going well oh, don't really know about that artificial intelligence I don't really know how it's going to work yet and fit in um and just in a happy coincidence rba lucy ellis spoke about exactly this today and she talked about um how previously electricity had this sort of you know democratizing character previous te technological revolutions actually 
meant less skilled workers could kind of pick up and therefore productivity picked up. Mm. Whereas this current revolution might be a little different and um, I certainly don't, but unless you have a PhD in computer science and, and quantum physics, maybe some of this data science is, you know, out of the reach of common commoners like, uh, like me and it might take more time for these kind of specialist skills to kind of work at the be learned and and actually improve productivity and lift but I'm, I'm definitely of the view that you know um we still have some amazing things ahead of us mm. and that's what then that can drive you know productivity in the future excellent so i need to go and ask now when i so much of the conversation we've had so far today has been about inflation and debt now when i saw the topic that you nominated and deflation immediately my ears pricked up and i was like <sighs> Deflation in an environment where we've got record debt levels around the world, does this present a problem? Yeah. Is it, uh, well, um, I'm not saying outright deflation, but certainly a lack of inflationary pressures or certainly, you know, as I said, quiescent or, you know, mm. lower levels of inflation. Uh, yeah, it just takes longer and longer to fix. I mean, inflation is kind of, you know, the debtor's friend and, yes. uh, you know, to, to help one repay. Perhaps um, that's part of, you know, the US fiscal, you know, uh, strategy and, and delivering a big fiscal stimulus right at, right at a very late time in the cycle is to generate a bit of inflation. Um, but again, that's been the story of, of post-GFC has been, you know, there there is no real inflation pressures. And again, I mean, I, again, I mean, I'm sort of pointing to much longer term around that, you know, artificial intelligence technology. There's there's terrible, uh, you know, demographics in some of the developed world, perhaps that's slowing down inflation. So I don't, I'm not, I'm not a deflationista, mm. as a reverse of an inflationista, but definitely I can see a backdrop of just structurally lower inflation and therefore structurally lower yields. Yeah. Do, you, do you think that might mean that uh, central banks, obviously the vast majority in the world are inflation targeters. Do you think there's a, a grounds to go this hypothetically does go and take place uh, to go and have a change of mandate rather than, uh, than being inflation targeting? So. Yeah, I, I think there is a fair chance. I mean, we're already seeing the discussion already change a lot more to financial stability or financial risks, if you like. I mean, hard to measure, but where central banks are trying to include or, or, or give more prominence to financial stability. So... Absolutely. I mean, I think the textbooks will sort of show we've moved from one regime in the 70s, one regime, you know, we used to target this and now we target inflation and and in, in you know, 20 years' time we'll be targeting something different. As I said, I suspect it's financial stability more than a nominal GDP. Okay. Exciting and very interesting times ahead. Uh, you'll be listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I've been uh, David Scott. I've been here with Sam Jacobs. Sam, did you enjoy your first uh, podcast? Uh, I had a lot of fun and fascinating listening to, uh, to our guest insights. Our guest this week has been uh, David Goodman, Head of Macro Strategy at Westpac Bank. David, thank you so much for your insights. It's been great. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Will you uh, come back on the show? I look, for, I look forward to the next time. Perfect. You've treated me so well. Perfect. I like the sound of that. Uh, you can find the podcast online on iTunes or on your preferred podcast platform. You can also follow all of us individually on Twitter. Myself, at Scuddy. Sam is at Mr. Underscore Sam Jacobs. And David at uh, David L. I. I. Goodman. Uh, so and I did see your your Twitter following was uh, was nowhere near up to scratch. Oh, so, ouch. so so no no. So if, so if you're out there listening and we know that a lot of people listen, please go and follow David on Twitter. There's an absolute mine of, uh, of information there. Uh, the show is being produced by Rick Salter. We'll catch you next time. Hold up. 